Well, everyone, welcome. We are talking about the Council of Jerusalem today in Acts 15. So show, don't tell is screenwriting 101. When people go to see a movie, they don't want to be told a really cool thing that has happened. They want to be shown a really cool thing that has happened. You don't want to explain things to them. You want to show the audience what's going on. What's so crazy about that is that sometimes the most remembered and often talked about scenes from movies are where people are speaking and speeches are being given. Uh, sometimes so much has already been shown, all that's left to do is talk about what has happened. Uh, some examples, the Jedi Council in Star Wars deciding what to do with Anakin, the Council of Elrond deciding what to do with the ring in Lord of the Rings, or Atticus Finch's famous speech to the courtroom in To Kill a Mockingbird. That's two for two on To Kill a Mockingbird references up here for me, by the way. Um, sometimes there are movies where the whole premise of the story is people locked in a room talking to each other, as is the case with 12 Angry Men. These scenes are so pivotal because everyone's taking their individual experiences and stories and putting them together to figure out what's going on. And here in our passage today, we see a similar scene. And in fact, it's an amazing scene for us today. Acts 15 is a decisive turning point in the story of Acts, if not the turning point of the whole book. If you've been with us through Acts, think of where we've been so far. We've seen a lot of these seemingly small self-contained stories that are building towards something. We've seen Pentecost and Stephen's sermon and his stoning, the Ethiopian eunuch, persecution, Paul's conversion, then Cornelius's conversion. All of these stories that have their own rising action, climaxes, and conclusions, but something feels like it's building in the background. One of the biggest threads in Acts is how God is bringing forth his plan to bring the nations to himself. And at this council, we see all these stories of Gentile inclusion uh, being brought to the table. The inclusion of the Gentiles for the apostles was not a, a trivial issue. And the implications of what it meant for life in the church and what salvation even meant were at the forefront of all their minds. They're trying to think through how is it that God is calling a people for himself. There is so much that could be said and so many wonderful things that are in this passage, but if someone tries to say everything, that leaves them saying not anything. So today, we're just going to look in this passage at how God has gone about drawing a people for his name. We're gonna look at this under three headings, the friction of the people, the unity of the people, and the foundation of the people. All of these points coming together to, ask the question, to answer the question, who is it that is in the church? First, we're gonna look at the friction of the people. Specifically, how is it that despite the tension and friction between people, can God still bring unity to his church? We can't get very far into chapter 15 without understanding the context of circumcision. I know this can be a, a squeamish topic and I promise to keep things as PG as possible. Uh, I'm very delighted to be speaking on this when the kids that we babysit are sitting in the audience, so amazing planning there. Um, so circumcision in the practice goes all the way back to Genesis 17. And here God commands Abraham, the father of the Israelite nation, that the sign of Abraham's covenant with God would be the process of circumcision. This sign would be given to all males in Israel at eight, years old, eight days old, sorry. Uh, and circumcision was a physical reminder 
to God's people that they were a part of his covenant community. That practice is still practiced today by Jewish people around the world. Uh, it did not stop at the turn of the millennium. Uh, but more than theological implications, who is God's people, who is not God's people, there was an, uh, an ethnic implication for this as well. This practice was given to the Israelites by God and the other Canaanite nations around them didn't, weren't really like, jazzed to pick that practice up. So it wasn't just who is God's people and who are not God's people, it was who are Jewish and who are not. Now there were avenues for Gentiles to be a part of God's people, but circumcision was always a part of the deal. The sign was a permanent physical reminder for God's people to remain faithful to their covenant. So that's the historical look back at what uh, the start, the inception of circumcision. But what about closer to Acts? What, what was it felt like then? We see in some writings uh, that as this was such a theologically and ethnic divisive uh, practice, that there were some who defied doing it and there were some who defended doing it. Particularly at the turn of the millennium, we see this increasing pressure for the Jewish people to Hellenize, which means to become more Greek, because that's what everyone's doing. They're in charge now. And with that increasing pressure, we have reports of Jewish men at the time going through a process of uncircumcising. Uh, before you start thinking about how that's even medically possible, we're, we'll, we'll move on. But suffice it to say, I bring that up because that would have been seen as a twofold spitting on the community. You're turning your back on your covenant with God and you're turning your back on your brothers and sisters in the Jewish community. So circumcision was very ingrained in everything they thought about when it comes to ethnic relations and theological relations. And right from verse one, we see that there were some teaching the brothers that circumcision was a prerequisite to salvation. From the viewpoint of a Jewish convert who's recently converted, you can see the sense that this makes. This is how we've always known who's in or out, so why would that change now? Uh, why would the Gentiles not need to be saved? Because if you're in the community, then you're saved, so they need to be circumcised, right? But Paul and Barnabas hear about this, and they're moved to speak about it. Luke tells us they had no small dissension and debate with them. I really enjoy the way Laura inflected the no small dissension there because the word that Luke uses for dissension, he uses elsewhere to describe rioting. So not to say Paul and Barnabas were rioting in the streets, but there's something very serious and intense with this discussion. They take it seriously. They don't brush it off. That prompts our duo to be sent to Jerusalem to ask the apostles and the elders there what to be done about this question. Uh, so as they go about their journey, we kind of see Paul and Barnabas showing their hand a little bit. First, they pass through Phoenicia, which is a Gentile region, and then they pass through Samaria, which the Jews very thought were unclean people. So when confronted with the question of should Gentiles be circumcised, Paul and Barnabas pass through an uncircumcised city, and then they pass through a region where they would have been circumcised, but the Jews wouldn't have been too jazzed about the fact that they were circumcised. So Paul and Barnabas may be hinting at what they might say at this council. But that all brings up the question of why was this taken so seriously? Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, just make the Gentiles be circumcised. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, just have them do it. It's just a process. We all did it. Why not them? This preaching of circumcision was taken so seriously by Paul and Barnabas because they were adding something to the gospel. 
This teaching was so serious that they felt they needed to go to the apostles to get it sorted out. This problem is so pervasive, in fact, that we see in Galatians that Paul says that this even led Peter astray for a time until Paul rebuked him at likely the most awkward lunch of all time. But what's the danger in thinking that we can add or take away from the gospel? If we think about it this way, say that you're going to a movie with some friends and you being the pragmatic wise person you are, decide to buy your tickets online ahead of time. Once you get there, all your friends are buying them at the counter and you start to hear some rumblings of like them judging you because we all know real movie buyers buy their tickets in person. So you're kind of confused as you go into the theater and they make you sit on a different row from them and all you can hear is them making fun of you for buying your tickets online. And on top of that, the employee from the movie theater keeps coming in to make sure your tickets are legit. This distinction seems ridiculous because you have the ticket, you belong there, you bought it just like they did. And that is what in effect is what is going on here. This circumcision debate and the temptation was tempting them to think there are two different people of God, us and them. And that temptation of circumcision can sneak its way into our hearts as well. Peter tells the assembly in verse 10 that imposing circumcision on the disciples, meaning everyone, not just the 12, um, is a yoke that neither us nor our fathers could bear. Because as Paul addresses in Galatians, if you want to be saved by one tiny part of the law, circumcision, then you have to look to the whole thing. And if you can't fulfill the whole thing, it all comes down on your head. None of us have the heart to do what the law requires. So we know that it's not an outward sign like circumcision that means we're in. It means something has to be done in our hearts. Luckily for us, and luckily for all believers across centuries, God promised a solution for this all the way back in Deuteronomy 36. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. The problem has always been the person's heart and God has promised himself to solve it. So our temptation of circumcision now isn't like it was then. It wasn't a matter of this outward practice to be saved. Our circumcision, looking at Deuteronomy 30, is when we refuse to turn to God and work in our hearts. We can do this before we believe in the gospel and we can certainly do it after we believe in the gospel. This shows itself when we're struggling with that thing again, whatever it is, lust or anger or lying, and instead of turning to the one who can fix it, we run away to fix it ourselves before we go to him. We somehow can convince ourselves that we need to fix ourselves for Jesus before we go to him when it is going to him that makes us right with him. It's a strange form of pride that makes us think that we can patch up our heart enough before we go to our omniscient cardiologist. It's running to Jesus with our sins and our struggles that produce the devotion and the heart change, not running away and forcing ourselves to live some way without his help. But if Christ has promised to do all of this in us, in me and in you as individuals, how does that work at a grander scale when we still sin and we still have to live in community with one another? That brings us to our second point, the unity of the people. 
We're going to look at how since God has made a people for himself, that people can find hope in being united, truly united to one another. For this section, we're going to primarily look at Peter's speech in verses 7 through 11. But first, the trip to Jerusalem. In verse 4, Paul and Barnabas arrive in Jerusalem and they're welcomed with open arms. The apostles cannot wait to hear all that God has been doing through Paul and Barnabas. But the attention, the tension immediately comes back in verse four when there are some of those in Jerusalem who are a part of the circumcision party and they repeat their, you know, their pamphlet that they leave on your door that everyone needs to be circumcised in order to be saved. Much like Paul and Barnabas, the apostles take this very seriously because as verse five shows us, these people saying these things were believers. Sit with that tension for a little bit. They were truly believers. The text tells us that after a lot of debate, Peter stands up and he addresses everyone there. And his speech is basically two parts. He talks about everything that happened between him and Cornelius, and then he talks about the implications of what happened between him and Cornelius. If you weren't with us when we covered Acts 10 or you need a bit of a refresher, Cornelius was the Ro one of the Roman centurions uh, assigned to Judea. And he was, in the book of Acts, the first purely Gentile convert to Christianity. Everyone up until then had been Jewish, like the apostles, or Jewish adjacent, like uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. So, say Jewish adjacent more times than that. Um, so an angel in Acts 10 appears to Cornelius, and he says, hey, there's this guy, Simon Peter, in a house. You need to go find him now. So Cornelius sends his people out to go find Peter. At the same time, Peter is getting a vision of this thing like a tarp coming out of heaven with all kinds of animals on it, clean, unclean, and the Lord tells him, uh, kill and eat. And Peter, being the good Jewish boy that he was, said, Lord, I would never think to eat anything unclean. I would never. And then Jesus tells him in verse 15, what God has made clean, do not call common. Immediately, the men from Cornelius show up. So there's this aha moment for Peter, to steal a phrase from my professor, that the vision wasn't just about eating, it was about the Gentiles, it was about these people. So after Cornelius believes and the people with him, the Holy Spirit comes in what people have called the second Pentecost, the Pentecost to the Gentiles. So Peter tells the story, shortened, truncated, the Sparknotes version, to the people at the Jerusalem Council. He tells them how God himself bore witness to the Gentiles' conversion by sending his spirit, just as he did to us. He goes on further to say that God has made no distinction between us and them, and that their hearts have been cleansed just as ours have. And then at his crescendo, Peter brings down the hammer in verse 11, where he says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And that is a first century mic drop if there ever was one. Because what he's saying is so earth shattering here. He's not saying that the Gentiles need to be saved like we have been. He's saying we're all saved in the same manner. There's no us and them, it's just us. Three times Peter in his speech compares the Jews and the Gentiles as being on the same side of the coin. And further, he's saying that circumcision was never about salvation. Salvation has always been about faith by grace. Even the Old Testament believers who would have been circumcised were still looking forward to something, still looking forward to the one that was coming. 
He talks about how all are saved, but he goes one step further and talks about how all that are saved are in a community. God has made no distinction between us and them. And not to steal James's thunder from a few verses ahead, but God has called a people to himself, not peoples. If you've been coming to our Sermon on the Mount Bible study, you'll hear that we've been using this term of Jesus describing an upside down kingdom. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. He's talking about how God's kingdom doesn't function in the way that an earthly kingdom does. And Peter is echoing Jesus here. It's almost like they knew one another. Uh, He's saying that there aren't different citizenships in the kingdom of God. There's just one baptism into one faith. We mentioned earlier that this tension and this striving can appear from an us versus them mindset in the church. So how can we possibly hope for unity when at the end of the day, I'm not you and you're not me? In our circles, we can, reform circles, we can tend to hyperfixate on Jesus' death and atoning sacrifice. Amazing things, wonderful things, and it's, the fa- it's what makes us able to be saved. But if we limit our experience of Jesus just to his death, we severely atrophy our relationship with him. Because as we've discussed in here so many times, it's by God's grace that we're united to Christ in more ways than just his death, in many, many more ways. Not just in a representative way of he represented me on the cross, so I have died because he has died, but also in this wonderful present way that Paul can say in Colossians 3, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. So as a believer, you are united to Christ in such a way that you have somehow died, even though you're all alive right here before me, hopefully still, uh, that you are with him in heaven, even though you were all alive before me here. And when Christ appears, who is your life, you will appear with him in glory. It is crazy and wonderful and mysterious, and it should be a comfort to everyone here to know that you are with Christ now, not just in his death. But our union with Christ goes a step further. If every individual Christian is united to Christ, what does that mean about our relationship to one another? As a professor of mine said, it's simple math. And you know when a seminarian is talking about math, they must know what they're talking about because we don't do that very much. Uh, If each one of us is united to Christ, that means each one of us is united to each other. As Paul, who remember is at this council, wrote in Romans 12, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So somehow in this mystic union with Christ, we are members of each other. So what does that mean for us? It goes back to what Peter said in his speech. God has made no distinction between us and them. If you're a Christian here and you look around, what do you think about your brothers and sisters in the church? Do we look at the people we disagree with and we grit our teeth and we're like, well, in the grand scheme of things, we're both on Jesus's team, so I'm just gonna stick it out until they're glorified and they'll see that I'm right. That's, that's not what Peter or Paul are arguing for here. God has saved that person, whoever that person is, in the same way they have saved me. There's no distinction between me and them. I'm united to them in such a way that downplaying that spits in the face of the love that Christ has for them and in a roundabout way, the love that Christ has for me. 
whoever they are, if they've experienced the grace of God and have faith in Jesus, they are a part of God's people. Even those in the circumcision party, the text tells us that they were believers, so this is why we can see that there is friction in God's people, but there should always be a hope to strive for unity. They weren't downplaying what the people of the circumcision party were saying. They were taking it seriously to bring them back into unity with them. Our one baptism into our faith should transcend our differences with one another if we are God's people. What Christians hold in common is far above and greater than what we hold in difference. That should, that should give us hope in unity of the church as we realize that not only am I relying daily on my unity with Christ, but so is every other Christian around the world. The Bible calls the church a family for a reason, because in our union with Christ, we can more fully lean on him, but in our day-to-day -day life, we can more fully lean on his body. We can take issues seriously, as we've seen in our text, while still hoping for unity. And that brings us to our final point, the foundation of the people. So we've looked at how there's tension and friction amongst people, and there has been, and there always will be, but we can hope for real unity in Christ. And now we're going to look at how God calling a united people to himself has always been his plan. So after Peter's mic drop, the crowd calls, falls silent and they listen to Paul and Barnabas, essentially confirming by experience what Peter has said. If you look with me at verse 12, they, the, the apostles and the elders, listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Peter has told them the shift that happened, that he saw, and then Paul and Barnabas are essentially showing how it's been playing out, how that shift has been playing out in the Gentile world. Then James stands up. This isn't James the apostle John's brother, but this is James Jesus's brother. Rarely does one feel the need to build off of a mic drop, but that's what James does here, and it's pretty cool. You kind of wonder if maybe he was the first pope. Uh, I'm joking, I'm not serious. Um, he tells the assembly that everything they've heard is amazing and it's true, and, he, and he's so excited to hear what Simeon has said, but then he adds that this has been coming for a long time, and they've had it in their scriptures right in front of them. If you look with me at verse 15, James says, and this, what everyone has just said, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. So James points back to the Old Testament to show what's really going on here. Because what he's referencing is Amos 9, and Amos 9 is a prophecy about Israel's return from exile. So what James is saying is that the, the exile has finally and truly ended. God has come back to be with his people. And according to James, they know that that is true because the Gentiles who are called by God's name have come in to God's people. It's an amazing look at the apostles' view of the Old Testament. And that pairs with something we see here about the apostles. It kind of seems like they've grown up a little bit. The days of them running away and the days of them being confounded and asking questions seem to have melted away. It's like through the Gospels and Acts, we've kind of seen them go from childhood to adulthood. 
They're no longer asking questions, but they are making clear and decisive decisions. Also notice that in this meeting, there's uh, something very unsupernatural going on. Up until now, we've seen most of these apostles' meetings have been casting lots to see what the Spirit wants, the Spirit literally coming down, visions, but that's not going on here. They're listening to the testimonies and checking Scripture to see what's going on around them. And this, this theme of growing up in the Holy Spirit is picked up later by apostles when they talk about moving on from milk to solid foods in a believer's life. It's in this last section of the Jerusalem Council that we see this interweaving of three important gifts that God has given his people as a foundation for this world. The scripture, the spirit, and leaders. We can see how the foundation the apostles set then has still continued to this day. As I said before, we've seen that the Holy Spirit has acted in some pretty decisive and definitive ways in acts between two Pentecosts, visions, spirit coming down physically. The spirit's been moving, it's suffice it to say. But in this passage, it's not that the spirit isn't showing up. He's there, just not in the same way. The spirit is working through the believer to see the wonderful works of God in his word. The spirit dwelling in the apostles here is what is illuminating their hearts and their minds to what's going on around them and what the scriptures have always said. The apostles weren't waiting on the spirit to act because he was acting in them. God had given the apostles the scripture and the spirit and he was speaking to them through it. Further, God had given his people the apostles as spirit-led leaders who would carry out the mission of the church and carry his gospel to the ends of the earth. I think so many of us can want a decisive, clear yes or no from God in our life, whether it's a move, whether it's uh, to have children, whatever it is, we want God to just tell us a sentence. Um, and I had a, a friend uh, recently talk about it this way in the analogy of his summer. So my friend is from Greece and his wife had to stay here while he went home to work at his church. And while he was there, they called each other every day to keep the relationship going, to bolster it, to stay in contact. And he said, how unfair would it be to my wife if on my desk I had a stack of unopened letters from her and I just called her to complain about how she wouldn't talk to me? And that's essentially what we communicate when we wait around on God to speak to us because he has spoken to us in his word and through his son. God in his infinite wisdom has decided that the way he wants to communicate with us is in his written word. Much like the woman in Song of Solomon, we know that the garden of his word is where our lover can be found. And when we neglect the way that he has chosen to communicate with us, we miss out on real communion with God. As the great hymn put it, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, has he laid for you down in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, than to you for refuge to Jesus have fled. If you are the people of God, take comfort in the fact that he has given you his word and his spirit and faithful leaders in the church. God didn't just save us and leave us and say, I'll come back when it's time for heaven. He saved us and he left us with a foundation. He hasn't left us with anything apart from himself. He has given us himself. It's, it's easy to see the, the fighting and the tension that appears in this passage 
and think about the fighting and the tension in the church in the 21st century and wonder how can God possibly work through the midst of people who are still growing and still have sin. But we've seen that the hope is in our union with Christ, that there's real unity to be had within the people of God, all who have been saved in the same manner with no distinction, being cleansed by faith. And not only has God saved his people, but he remains and abides with them through his spirit and his word until he's with us again physically. Take heart that your inclusion into the people of God is not some outward practice of circumcision, but an inward reflection of what God has already done to make you his. When we prepare for the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, it's very easy to think of the vertical aspect of what we're preparing for. We think about how this is uh, Christ's body and blood that was given for us and spilt out for us and how we've been made right with him. But today, I would implore that as you prepare to take the Lord's Supper, if you are a believer, that you add a horizontal aspect to it as well. When we look around at all the people who are approaching the table, do we rejoice at the diversity and the number of people that God has saved? Here at OGC, we take the cup and go back to our seats and wait and take it together so we can take them all together because as corny as it sounds, that's what a family does. We eat together. So remember that God has saved a people for himself, for his name, not just any one person. We should be rejoicing in the fact that we do not take our communion alone this way or this way. While, God, while the truth that God has saved you individually is very true, he has also saved you to a people as an inheritance for his beloved son. So today, despite the tension and despite the friction, remember the unity and remember that you are not alone in your communion. Thank God that he has shown his ability to save to its fullest as he is continuing to save day by day. This meal was never meant to be taken alone and thank the Lord that he is adding to the table chairs by the day until one day that table will finally be full by all of those who have been called by God's name. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the ability to meet as your people. Lord, as we move throughout our day, help us become more aware of our unity to your son. And as we move throughout our week, help us become more aware of our unity to one another. Lord, it's in the name of your son who reigns with you at the right hand with the Holy Spirit, one God forever, amen.